Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, you'd help us to see the profundity of it, and especially as we understand the Lord's Supper, how you have ordained the great marriage supper of the Lamb from the beginning of the foundation of the world. And, Lord, that we're heading towards that. And I pray, Lord, as we look at this, this data from the scriptures, that you would impress upon us this fact that your promises are true, and that one day we will recline with you in the kingdom and partake of your great supper. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And, gentlemen, I do promise that we will finish. Uh, it's, we're in Proverbs chapter 3, but I forgot to give out the assignment. So this week and next, I'll be focusing on the Lord's Supper. One of the reasons I want to do that is we did hit baptism a few weeks ago in a sermon, and I thought, well, let's hit another ordinance of the Lord because we have new people all the time. And so I wanted to have this out there. I also wanted to revisit a wonderful article that Bob had written. I can't believe it's already, it was in the year 2013, nine years ago. It's volume 126. It's entitled, Dining with the King. The subtitle, I like that as well. It says, Jesus Dines with Sinners and How Banquets in the Bible Reveal Salvation or Judgment. So I want to turn everyone's attention to that article. I highly recommend this week that you read that because there's things in it that have, there's insights that Bob has that we won't be able to get into in this class. So please read that article if you get a chance. But I want to today talk about the precursor to the Lord's Supper, and that is this concept of mishta that Bob was writing about in his article. The term mishta in Hebrew is a term for a supper or a dinner. In fact, let me put up the definition. And the reason I'm doing so is I'm going to show you this ends up being a backdrop to the Lord's Supper, and I'll explain why. The Mishnah in the Old Testament was a dinner or a banquet. People often either found salvation or judgment at the Mishnah. So all the way through the Old Testament, there will be a dinner, usually at a special occasion. Sometimes it would be a feast. Other times it would maybe a dedication. But at the dinner, some person would end up being saved or group. And another person or group would be judged. And oftentimes there would be a reversal, especially in the case of Esther. That's one of my favorite ones. Oops, I'm moving my pulpit around. One of my favorites is Esther, and so we'll look at that. So again, what is the Mishta? It's a foreshadowing, ultimately, of the future great marriage supper of the Lamb, where God is going to do the ultimate reversal. You and I, as the people of God who have been persecuted here and now, we will be exalted, and the enemies of God will be judged. In fact, you find that in Revelation chapter 19. Do you remember at the marriage supper of the Lamb? We go to have dinner with the king, whereas what happens to the enemies that surround Jerusalem? They are dinner. They're fed upon by the beasts of the air and the beasts of the field. Okay, so a great reversal. So this is all being foreshadowed all the way back in the Old Testament. So what I'm going to do is have your Bibles handy, and I'll lead you through a lot of these that happened in the Old Testament. I want to begin in Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis chapter 19, to remember, this is the case of Sodom and Gomorrah being judged. And if you remember, you had these two angels that had visited Lot and his family, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah are so perverse, they want to have relations with these angels. Well, there ends up being a banquet, a dinner, and then a great reversal, where after the Mishnah, Lot is brought out in his family, Sodom and Gomorrah are judged, 
but Lot and his family are saved. That's our first instance. So let's read Genesis 19, 1 through 3. And then I'll set the context, then we'll read a little bit more after that. So we'll do a lot of reading today. I like what Bob said. Let's do something new. Let's read the Bible. <laughs> Again, in, uh, you're right, Bob, in seminary, there wasn't so much of that always. So let's do that here. Genesis 19, 1 through 3. Notice it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the site, or excuse me, at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Um, Let me stop there for just a moment. What's very interesting is this, even back in Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, notice the washing of the feet. That was part of a technical greeting in the ancient Near East. And so if you had a foreigner travel to your humble abode, your home, there would be three things you would do. You'd wash their feet, you would anoint their head with oil, and you'd give them a kiss. Um, And it would be, you know, a a kiss, a, a friendly one. The idea there is that you're officially welcoming them into your home. You're giving them a kind greeting. Well, what's very interesting is hold on to that idea because when we get to the New Testament, there's going to be another dinner. And at that dinner, a Pharisee, someone who should have known the word of God, should have known who the Messiah was, who had all the advantages, he scoffs at Jesus to the point where he doesn't greet him. He doesn't anoint him on his head. He doesn't give him the greeting, the kiss, and he doesn't wash his feet. But lo and behold, there's a sinful woman. She's a prostitute, more than likely a Gentile. More than likely, there's some evidence of that. So she is as far off as you can be. She is without the covenants, the promises. She's a prostitute. And yet, because she's been forgiven and she has gratitude, she washes Jesus' feet. She anoints him with perfume. And she does precisely what the Pharisee should have. And at that mishta, you find that there's a great reversal where she's going to be saved... And unless that Pharisee would repent, he is going to perish in the future kingdom. And so I want you to think about the idea of greeting really didn't change even much from the time of Lot, apparently, till the time of Jesus in the ancient Near East. Notice it goes on. We left off at the end part of verse 2 of Genesis 19. These are the angels. It says, they said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Does everyone see the term feast? That's mishta. So there's a great banquet there. All right, so what happens after this? Uh, Brian, would you mind reading uh, Genesis 19, verses 4 through 5? Let's read to see what happens here after this. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Wow. So here you have the sinful men of the city. They want to have relations. In fact, I'll just keep reading in verse 10. It says, But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So the angels supernaturally protect Lot. 
He's trying to protect them from the perversion of the men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if you skip all the way to verse 24, think about it. They have their Mishta. Lot and his family are brought out of the town. And look at Genesis 19.24, the summary of the entire event. So everyone, I'll just give you a moment to turn to Genesis 19.24. Notice what it says. It says, Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So Lot and his family are saved, the righteous, after the Mishnah, Sodom and Gomorrah are judged. Now, I also want to go to the New Testament one more time before we proceed to the next example, and that's because this example of Sodom and Gomorrah is used by Jesus as to what it will be like at his return. And so I want you to see that because the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is really a prototypical example that God gives as to how he judges. Namely, he brings his righteous out and then he sends his wrath upon the world. He did it with Noah. He brought Noah and the family out. The wrath came. He brings Lot and his family out. The wrath comes. So the precedent in Scripture is not that the people of God go through wrath, but rather they are exempt, they are brought out, then the wrath comes. And so I just want to make that quick connection because it's tied to the Mishta. It's tied to the Lord's Supper. You and I have been spared. Doesn't Jesus say, this is the cup which is in my blood, drink it for all of you, for the forgiveness of sins, right? So we are celebrating the fact that we have redemption with our Lord and we're going to be spared the wrath of God. What happened at the Passover? The Passover, all of Egypt is judged. Who is saved? Those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. The people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. Look at Luke 17, verses 28 through 30. Luke 17, 28 through 30. And again, this is Jesus setting a precedent in Scripture where, yes, the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. And so I want you to see that. Luke 17, 28 through 30. Please turn your Bibles there. And as you're turning there, um, just for those that are walking in, we're talking about the Lord's Supper and uh, particularly a concept in the Old Testament where there was a dinner in the Old Testament called a Mishnah in which you would have some people judged and others saved. And that pattern we'll see ends up foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. So that's what we're looking at. Now here at Luke 17, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. He says they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Notice in verse 28, notice he's describing life as it always goes on. There was nothing to tip them off. They, they got up, they had their Cheerios they turned on Fox News. They got the sports scores. They looked at the funnies. Whatever you do on a typical day. But that day the wrath came after the people of God were brought out. That's the idea. So again, verse 30, Jesus says it will be just the same. Just the same in the coming of the Lord. The people of God are removed. Then the wrath comes. Yeah. Brian. Just a quick side note, the Sodom and Gomorrah in archaeological digs, yeah. they've proven that there was some catastrophic heat 
molten heat when they dig way down and and there was it had to do you know with with fire or you know that's they don't they don't say brimstone but there there was a, a sure. cataclysmic heat uh, uh, event yeah and Brian where do you find a lot of your archaeology stuff um, you were talking to me before and you're uh, this morning and you were talking a lot about the archaeology stuff that you've been yeah. finding are there any sources or sites you'd like to point uh, people I get a, to I get a magazine um, sorry, put it on the mic just so people can hear. Yeah. I, get a, I get a magazine that puts a lot of archaeological stuff in there. What, what's it called? Well, there's one that's called uh, Biblical Archaeology Today. Oh. And then I that's get good. Prophecy Watchers that okay. every once in a while they'll have an archaeological thing in there. Yeah. And then, believe it or not, I even know how to work YouTube. Okay, <laughs> And I got an archaeological, a biblical archaeological site there that updates like almost every week. There's something okay. happening all the time. Biblical Archaeology Today. That sounds like a good read. Yeah, thank you for that. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, this is one example. So this is the first example that we see in the scriptures where you have a Mishnah. There's a reversal. Some to save someone as judge, but let's look, uh, look at another example. This is found in Genesis 21, 8 through 10, where this is the case of Abraham, who ends up having a mishta when his child Isaac is weaned. After the mishta, this dinner, sure enough, Ishmael is sent away, and yet Isaac and Sarah are promised to be the having the child of promise. That is, Isaac is the child of promise. So Ishmael is sent away. It's not that he's not blessed. He's going to be turned into a great nation. But he is not the chosen one from whom the promises come. And so you have this reversal at this next Mishnah where Ishmael is sent away and Isaac is spared from his scoffing and is declared to be the child of promise. So let's look at Genesis 21, 8 through 10. Notice what it says. It says, The child grew and was weaned. That's Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So again, stop there. The term feast there, Mishnah. Now notice what happens in verse 9 through 10. It says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, that would be Ishmael, the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. All right, now let's keep reading. Notice verses 11 through 12. It says, The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So he does not want to cast Ishmael away. After all, this is one of his sons too. But notice the Lord intervenes here directly. Verse 12, it says, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Now listen carefully. Through Isaac, your seed, literally, shall be named. So notice the seed promise. Remember, you're going to go from Abraham to the Messiah, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, on to the Messiah. And so Isaac is absolutely essential to that, and there the promise is being reiterated. Now remember, this is being alluded to. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll get Paul back there. And Paul is doing a do-it-yourself. He's a do-it-yourselfer. He's going right to the mic okay. himself. That's I great. I know that there was an article, uh, the CIC article, Dining with the King. Yes. Is that Mishnah also? Yes. In fact, I, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Um, maybe you came in later. I was citing that at the very beginning of this message. Oh, I that, know that I would love for everyone to read that. It's volume 126 of Critical Issues Commentary. It was the fall of 2013, Dining with the King. 
And um, it talks all about these issues, in fact, into greater detail than we can even get into. So I highly recommend that you read that. Absolutely. Now, one thing I want to point out is both in Romans 9-7, you also see this in Hebrews 11, but in Galatians chapter 4, remember Hagar and Sarah are allegorically used by the Apostle Paul to differentiate between works and salvation by God's grace. Do you remember what Hagar represented? She represented Sinai down below, the attempt of man to be justified by works. Why? Because remember, the promise was that Abraham was going to have a son, and it was going to come through Sarah, but they scoffed, they laughed. They said, well, we're too old, so let's help God out. And so Hagar enters into the picture, works. Okay, but what does Sarah represent? She represents, as Paul said, the Jerusalem above. Did the Jerusalem above come about by man's works? No, only God did that. A city who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so those two women contrast works versus grace. And yes, we see that at this Mishta again, Ishmael sent away, the promise is going to go through Isaac. Again, very telling that this all happens at a Mishta. Let's move on to the next one. Let's go to Genesis 40, verses 16 through 22. Now remember, this is where Joseph, he's sold into slavery by his brothers, recall. But God is going to use those circumstances to spare Israel from that famine that comes upon the the land. So I like to think of Egypt as that incubator in which this infant Israel as a nation is allowed to grow and to thrive until it's time to get out of the incubator, then God brings them out in the Exodus. But here's what happens. Remember, Joseph is in captivity, and there ends up being a mishta that the Pharaoh holds, but prior to it, Joseph prophesies that the chief cupbearer is going to be exalted and spared. He's in jail. But you remember who else was in jail? It was the chief baker, and he ends up being killed. And yet Joseph prophesied that as well. And again, it happens at a Mishta. One is saved and one is judged. Notice Genesis 40, verses 16 through 22. It says, When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat you, excuse me, eat your flesh off you. Stop there. That's not good. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good outcome. So that's not pleasant. But notice verse 20. It says, Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast. There's a mishta for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Notice verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office. There's the salvation, the restoration. And he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Verse 22. But... He hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. 
Again, the pattern is uncanny. At Amishta, this great feast, you have the cupbearer saved, but the chief baker's judge. All right, so it happens time and time again. So we're seeing a pattern. At the Mishta, you have someone is saved or a group is saved, and you have another person or group that is judged and perhaps destroyed. Okay, let's go to the next one. I'll keep just showing you these. Let's look at 1 Samuel 25, verses 2. We won't read all of this, but here I want you to remember that this is about Nabal, that fool. He had the sheep shearing business in Carmel. He was a very wealthy man, but it's interesting that his name literally means fool. And of course, this is the man who David and his men, as they're fleeing from Saul, 1 Samuel 25, ironically, David and his men are protecting Nabal and his sheep shearing business. Now, why is that significant? Well, because first of all, David is a kinsman. He is apparently related in some way to Nabal. Therefore, on this particular feast day, he asked for some sustenance. Remember, David sends men in his name to greet Nabal. And what's very interesting is that that starts something called the Shaluach. That's a participle in Hebrew, which means the one who was sent. And what's interesting is in Hebrew, this concept that we see in the Old Testament is that the one who was sent has the very authority of the one who sends them. So if the King David sends his men to Nabal and Nabal mistreats his men, then it's identical to mistreating David. Now, this pattern we see in the New Testament where Jesus says, whoever receives you about his apostles receives me. And whoever rejects you rejects me. So as the apostles go out, if they're warmly received, it's the reception of Christ. That's why don't fall for the red-letter Christians. If someone says, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, I only go with what Jesus said. And they say, I don't want anything to do with Paul. I'm dealing with someone that holds to that view right now. And um, it's, they, they're not in this church. It's someone on the outside. And isn't that sad? Because do you realize that if they reject Paul, they're rejecting Christ? That's the idea of the apostolos. The one who was sent has the authority of the one who sent him. But that all begins back in the Old Testament. So turn your Bibles here to 1 Samuel 18.6. Now I want to start there because I want to build the case. Here's what I want you to think about. The backdrop to this story has to be that you have to understand David has renown. He is well known in Israel. And the reason that's important is because it's going to show that Nabal really is a fool. Why doesn't Nabal realize that he's mistreating the king of Israel, the one that the Lord had made promises to? Okay, so let's start in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. So this is seven chapters prior to chapter 25. Chronologically, this would have occurred first. This is after David had slain Goliath. And all these women come from these various towns. They're celebrating David's return. Notice 1 Samuel 18, 6. I hope you've turned your Bibles there. It says this. It says, It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And, oops, I cut off my quote. (laughs) All that, and it goes, wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Can somebody, uh, does somebody have their Bible? Can you keep reading? It ends up saying, they say, uh, 
The women sing. sang they as they you. played and said, Saul had slain his thousands and David his Ten, ten thousands. thousands. How far are you on? That's perfect. Right there, that's what I... I don't know how I cut that off. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I wanted you to hear. So it was known that, yes, Saul was certainly important. He was the king, and they were singing his exalts. He had killed a thousand, and, but David is ten thousands. Remember, that's where Saul becomes jealous, and from that day wants to plot to kill David. But here's the point. David had renown. Nabal knew exactly who it was. Now, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25, verse 28. And I want you to remember 1 Samuel 25, 28. As the story went, David sent his men to Nabal. And he says, you know, it's a feast day. I'm a kinsman. I've been protecting your flock. Could I have some sustenance? Nabal the fool mistreats and scoffs at David's men, therefore mistreated David himself. So if you remember the story, Abigail, this beautiful wife of Nabal the fool, intercedes on the fool's behalf. And so we're going to read about the intercession, and I want you to see Abigail's words here to David because she shows that she had faith in who David was, which is shocking. Notice 1 Samuel 25, 28. Abigail says, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, For Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord, that's David, an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battle of Yahweh and evil will not be found in you all your days. So Abigail's point is this. David, you're going to be the king over all Israel. God has made a covenant with you. He's going to establish your house forever. Let me prevent you, David, from tainting your hands with the blood of this fool, Nabal. She's interceding, not just on behalf of Nabal, but the anointed one of Israel, the future king of Israel. What is shocking about that is she is expressing faith that Yahweh had made a covenant with David, which we don't read about until we get to 2 Samuel 7, which kind of stretches um, our understanding of the, the, the sequence of events. So there must have been this covenant that had been made earlier. Okay, and it's probably reestablished then when you get to 2 Samuel 7. So 2 Samuel 7 may be, in fact, the second time it's reiterated as a capstone to David's tenure. So she knows that Yahweh has made a covenant promise to David. Why is that important? Because Nabal should have known that too. And so Nabal is rejecting the Lord's anointed. That's why he's so culpable. He's showing a disrespect not just to David, but Yahweh who made the covenant. Now, let's see what happens. Let's look at 1 Samuel 25, 36 to 32. Please turn your Bibles forward to there. 1 Samuel 25, 36 through 42. It says, Then Nab- excuse me, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a mishtah in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. Verse 30, it says, About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Notice verse 39. So he dies after the Mishnah, right? Verse 39, let's just read all the way to verse 42. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Listen to his thankfulness. Blessed be Yahweh, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. Stop there. Who was used as an instrument of God to keep David from doing that evil? Abigail was. Abigail's intercession, God providentially used this maidservant to keep David's hands clean. Then it says, Yahweh, he continues to bless him. He says, Yahweh has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. I love this. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, she spoke, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose, this is verse 42, and rode on a donkey and her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Brothers and sisters, at Amishta, Nabal the fool is judged. Abigail the intercessor is rewarded and exalted. Again, it's uncanny. All the way through the Old Testament, after the Mishnah, someone is judged and someone is saved. By the way, this also should remind us that vengeance is the Lord's. Amen. That's something that we see in the book of Romans, Romans twelve nineteen, And that's something that we want to keep in our minds today because we have a lot of, what would you say, unfairness in our culture. No. We have a two-tier justice system. No. And it's tempting to want to exact revenge ourselves and this is something i have to constantly remind myself of is vengeance is the lord's that we're going to make a room for his vengeance and not our own and that's something i think we can learn from david here as well i'm sorry uh rich yeah thank you yeah i think what you're saying is exciting it really is beautiful and exciting because you're right in our society in which we live lies have become absolutely the absolute um, um, mainstay, yeah. or what's the good word to say? Lies have become truth in, yeah. in a way from these people because they lie so much. Right. And it's nice to know that these liars, they're all going to hell, you know? Yeah. And, and I know that sounds mean to say, but it's true, though. It's true. And, and, and us who are going to be absolutely victimized by these liars, it, you can see the noose tightening around our necks with all the things going on around us, yeah. we're going to die probably at their hands, you know, and they're going to be exalted here on earth. But then the great reversal is going to happen, yes. and we're going to be the ones that are going to be saved and brought to heaven, and they're all going to hell. Yes. And it'll, it, that's the hope that we have. And I love what you're saying. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't have to take up arms and shoot them dead. Right. God will take care of that. We just right. have to be patient and trust in the Lord. I love what you're saying. Yeah, amen. Thanks, Rich. Yes, um, you're right. We certainly want the salvation of our enemies, and we'll be reading about that in our Sermon on the Mount where we're called to love our enemies. Jesus says, hey, if you love your neighbor and your friends, how are you any better than the pagans? But if you love your enemies, you show yourself to be my disciples. And so certainly we want to do that, but at the same time, there is this pillaging of God's people that will not be tolerated. I remember in the book of Colossians, Paul says that he did his share of filling up the afflictions of Christ. And we talked about how that there was a bucket. Uh, this is my analogy. But there's a bucket that is the total filling of God's people's suffering. 
And as history goes on, that bucket gets more and more full. At some point, it fills to the full. And it's at that point that the Lord returns. Now, providentially, what day is that? Is it tonight? Is it two weeks from now that the bucket is full? We don't know. But we know at some point it's filled to the full. And the point is, as you and I suffer in the culture of the day, we are doing our share in filling up the bucket as well. But the point is, the wrath and the vengeance belongs to the Lord. Amen. And so this, the only way you and I can really live that out is, as, as Bob teaches us in this article, and it, as he has for 40 years, we have to believe the promises of God. If we don't believe the promises, we'll try to get the vengeance here and now. Yeah, so well said. Thank you. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, we want to take revenge on these people. I get that same feeling all the time. The Lord is long-suffering. Therefore, we should be somewhat (laughs) long-suffering. Yes, yes. Right, well said, Brian. I know. Um, I tell you a story where this had to... Oh, I'm sorry, Paul, you go ahead. Yeah, I just want to rephrase what my brother is saying, make sure I got it right. In other words, attitudinally, we can really have different opinions, for sure. We're in this world of sin. We know what's going on. But as far as action goes, we're in a state of neutral. We just let God take care of it. Yeah, it's not that we don't oppose evil. Um, If we love God, we hate evil, and we we can stand and certainly defend the innocent. And I think we have a right. I'll lay this out in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think we're called against self-defense. I do believe that that is uh, something we can do, and I'll kind of lay out some principles for that. But what the idea is vengeance is one in which your physical life isn't being threatened at the time, per se, and that you're simply angered and you want to get even. And that's something that the Bible does prohibit. Not the idea that, hey, um, Susie's being shot, and therefore I'm going to offer her Betty, uh, offer the criminal Betty too, turn the other cheek. What I'm going to show you is turn the other cheek is about insult. It's not about assault. Okay? So the criminal's hurting Jimmy. I'm going to give him Danny, my other son. No, that's not what the scripture is teaching. It's about being insulted. And the idea is I'm not going to wreak vengeance upon someone who's insulting me, but that doesn't mean I won't defend the innocent. So that's where we as Christians, I think, have to draw the line. Defense, yes, but not vengeance. Not revenge, as it were. And in fact, remember, that's why even under the Old Covenant, they had to have the cities of refuge to limit the amount of revenge that was done. Ironically, the famous Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, many of the Jews in Jesus' day misunderstood that, is demanding revenge. In other words, they thought, hey, I have to have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I can never show mercy. But the idea was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was to limit the amount of revenge. The idea is, I lose an eye, I can't take your life. You hurt my finger, I can't break your leg. It's that sort of idea. And so even in the Old Covenant, you see this restraint of human vengeance, right? And ultimately, for us under the New Covenant, we know the Lord Jesus is coming back for us. So, yes, I'll tell you a story. Back when we were at the Fick Auditorium, we used to rent um, the, for those of you that may be new here, the Edina High School. Most of you know and were there. And when we were, I did a Marxist message one Wednesday night. I thought it was a relevant topic back then. I still do. But I remember doing it. It was apologetics. And I was doing, well, interestingly enough, the very night that I was there, boy, Edina, I don't know. (laughs) They had at that school a UN meeting where they were rallying for climate change. And I'll never forget, I came out. I was the last one out. I had to, you know, put some stuff away. 
And in this huge Edina high school parking lot, there was just my truck, the gas-guzzling evil Chevy with a 5.3-liter V8. And next to, it, next to it was a Prius. And she had parked, uh, I'm, and again, I'm not, maybe it was a he, but from the crowd I saw, it was probably a she. And it was this far from my driver's door. And they obviously did it intentional because there was literally acres of space that they could have parked. So they were trying to send me a message that they were morally superior. They had the Prius and I had the evil uh, Chevy truck. But there was a part of me that wanted to get in my truck by walking across the hood of the Prius and propelling myself in like the Dukes of Hazard through the window. <laughs> but being that I was a pastor and I belonged to Jesus Christ, I decided to go around the other way. But I'm saying that is there are times in your life where this will be practical to say, I'm going to give it to the Lord. Whereas maybe in your pagan days, you would have taken vengeance yourself. Are you with me? So it's a good, yes, Beth. Right along with that, now that we're dealing with uh, the aftermath of, of Roe v. Wade, uh, as we can follow the Lord and support the pregnancy centers. Yes. And we don't have to go and paint over the Planned Parenthood places or march and scream. We can do what the Lord would have us do, support Amen. the pregnancy centers and vote for those who do. Amen. Well said, sister. Yes. Yeah, we can give it to God and praise be to God for that. I, I agree that it's been brought to the states and we, um, we have a chance to make it illegal and save babies. And yes, we can devote ourselves to helping these women have these babies and support them. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, it's very good. Well, let's go to our, um, I think this is the final one I have on the list. And this is probably the coup de grace in the Old Testament. It's the case of Esther. Now, I want you to remember the case of Esther is where you have this wicked Persian, Haman, who is... I forget if he's second in command. He's very high up in the king's entourage in Persia. And Haman has it out not only for Mordecai the Jew, but for all the Jews. And he wants to murder the Jews. And what happens after a mishta is you have this great reversal where, ironically, Haman, who wants to murder the Jews and exalt himself, he ends up being put on the very gallows that were prepared for Mordecai the Jew. And all of the expensive exaltation from the banquet is not given to Haman as he expected, but rather it's given to Mordecai. And he is the one who is exalted. So let's read here. I want to read to you Esther 5.14. And the reason I want to read this to you is this is a prediction from Zeresh, who is the wife of Haman. And she even predicts that, in fact, I'm sorry, she actually predicts in 613 that Mordecai the Jew will be cause, become the cause of the fall of her, of her own husband. But here, notice what she says in 514. It says, Then Zeresh, his wife, and all of, uh, I'm sorry, and all of his friends said, Have I, oops, I'm sorry, I've got some bad typing here. Have 
a gallow 50 cubits high made, and in the morning asked the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And again, these end up being the very gallows that Haman ends up being hung on and Mordecai ends up being exalted. Now, the point that I was making is later in chapter 6, I think it's around verse 13, the same Zeresh, which is the wife, the wife of Haman, predicted that, yes, Mordecai and the Jews will not be taken and it would lead to the downfall of her husband. She knew that the Lord would protect the Jews. Now, let's read Esther, turn Esther 7, verses 2 through 8, and we'll read those verses. So remember the story here, Mordecai is being plotted against by Haman. Queen Esther wants to get the hearing of her husband, King Azurus, who is the king of, of Persia. And it happens at Amishta. Esther 7, verse 2, it says, And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, there's the Mishta, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women... I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Azurus asked Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who would presume to do thus? Verse 6, it says, Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king rose in his anger from drinking wine. Again, they're at the Mishta. And went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Verse 8, it said, Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, I'll stop there. If you remember the Veggie Tales version, yes. Haman is brought to the place of perpetual tickling. <laughs> That's the kiddie version. He's hung. He's hung on the very gallows, on the very gallows prepared for Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, this is why the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim literally means the lots. It's the lots that Haman had cast to determine what month he would end up exterminating the Jews. And ironically, the lots had fallen on the month of Adair, which is March. And so in March, the Jews celebrate Purim to remember the great reversal that happens at this banquet. Yes, Brian. Yeah, I was going to bring up the, the Purim uh, deal there, but also the Jews uh, make a cookie called uh, homentaschen, oh. which is a, uh, a fruit-type uh, cookie. Apparently, 
uh, Haman had a semi-triangular hat or head covering that he wore, and the cookie resembles uh, that, and the Jews, that's like eating Haman. (laughs) (laughs) That's great insight, Brian. Thank you. You get to eat Haman in practice. That's great. Um, You know, what's interesting is I, I thought about putting this message together. I thought, how we could use this with our Jewish unbelieving friends and neighbors as they're celebrating Purim. Can you imagine being able to share this material and say, do you know this great reversal at the banquet happens all the way through the Bible? And then bring them to the New Testament. Bring them to those who are saved by faith in Christ at a banquet and those who are going to be judged because they reject Christ. We can use these things because it's in their culture. It's part of Scripture, and we can use it to witness to our Jewish neighbors and friends. Yes, Linda. I'm sorry, we'll get a microphone back to you uh, from... Oh, thank you for doing so. I've always wondered why or how Esther knew to have two banquets, or is there some significance at all? Or does she have any idea how this is going to play out? I mean, she obviously doesn't know Haman's going to be coming to ask to be um, rewarded in some way, and then he ends up doing it for Mordecai. But I was just like, why two banquets? And you know, how- we don't know. You know, providentially, I'm, I'm sure she didn't know exactly how this is all going to play out. But what's interesting is, again, it happens at a Mishta banquet that you have the reversal. What's very interesting is the book of Esther was debated as to whether or not it would be incorporated into the canon in the, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures. And one of the debates surrounding it is God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But what's very neat is I think that's probably perhaps a literary device by whoever the composer of it was because conspicuously behind the scenes is this God who ordains all things. This God who, as Bob is going to teach us next week, Romans 8, 28, does really cause all things to work out for the good for those who love him or called according to his purpose. And so it's almost like a literary device where it's so conspicuously absent that you know he's behind the scenes doing it. He's the one who's orchestrating it. And so, again, it's one of these things that we see after the fact that, wow, this happened at another Mishta. I don't think Queen Esther probably saw that. But yet she was faithful with what she knew. And that is, if she could cry out to the Lord, he would intervene on their behalf. And she did what Mordecai had requested. So yes, again, providentially, we're seeing that it all worked out after the fact at the Mishta. Yeah. So again, I don't know the significance of the second banquet, but um, it happened at a banquet nonetheless. So very, very good question. Anybody else? Well, I'll move on. I'm sorry to go so slow, but I promise we will try to finish this by next week so that way when we have the Lord's Supper, this will all come together. I want to show you some 300 years prior to the book of Esther, the prophet Isaiah was foreshadowing a great eschatological banquet, a mishta. And in this mishta, what God would do through the Messiah is he would reign upon the earth, subdue the enemies, and exalt his people. Not just exalt his people where you and I are going to have better days, but he would wipe out death on our behalf. And this is all going to be associated with what I believe to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, which our Lord's Supper foreshadows. And so again, the Lord's Supper is the culmination of all of these mishtas. So listen to what Isaiah says, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. By the way, before I read this, this happens to be in that section in Isaiah from Isaiah 24, 1 
all the way to Isaiah 27, 13. It's called the little apocalypse. Why? Because much of the data that you see later in the book of Revelation is in fact here. It's a little apocalypse. And so it follows that this is eschatological. So notice here Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. Isaiah promised, he says, Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. There's a mishta for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. Notice verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. You see that in Revelation. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. That is going to happen, I believe, when the Lord Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. And when he's reigning over the earth, remember the swords will be beaten to plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, the nations shall no longer learn war, and death will be swallowed up. Now, I want to remind you that, yes, in this section, this is about this future great banquet. Turn ahead your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. I just want you to see some of the other promises in this section of Isaiah, and I want to attach that to this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage, by the way, Bob, thank you for this great article. And, uh, it was nine years ago. I can't believe it was that far or that long ago, but nine years, it's still a classic. Well, thank you. So, yeah. Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. Please turn your Bibles there. We'll just look at what else happens in this time period. Notice the great promise of the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. The Lord says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. Stop there for just a moment. What's the purpose of the dew? Dew was life-giving in the ancient Near East. You and I, we get plenty of rainfall. We say, hey, I can't wait for the rain to bring my crops back. You might go a long time in Israel without rain. What gives preservation to some of the crops is dew. As you have a lot of clear nights in the Mideast, you have terrestrial radiation so the heat rises there's no clouds and it cools off and as the air cools it reaches the dew point then you have water that forms and it gives life to the plants and so dew is considered life-giving that's why he's mentioning that he says in the earth will give birth to the departed spirits so stop there certainly verse 19 is a reference to the resurrection So if anyone says, well, the Old Testament doesn't teach the resurrection, yes, it does. It says it directly here in Isaiah 26, and then again in Daniel chapter 12. Notice verse 20, though. Notice at the resurrection, verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you and hide for a little while until literally it's his wrath runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Notice in verse 20, God has his people hidden while his wrath runs its course. What happened with Noah and his family? They are hidden in the ark, and the wrath ran ran its course. Lot and his family are removed from Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's wrath ran its course. And the future day, when you and I are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, This is going to happen again. So when you and I are having the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins, we're spared from the wrath, 
that we're lined up with Mordecai, not Haman. That we're those who are going to be saved while our enemies will be judged. And this is all, again, foreshadowed in the Old Testament. One more thing that I want to point out. Turn your Bible just one chapter ahead to Isaiah 27, 12. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. I'll show you this is at the end of Matthew 24, 31 in the Olivet Discourse. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. Isaiah 27, 12, notice it says, In that day, again, this is the future day when this all occurs, Yahweh will start his threshing floor from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and he will be gathered up one by one, sons of Israel. Stop there. Is this a reference to the rapture? No, it's a reference to the ingathering of Israel. Why is the flowing stream of Euphrates uh, talked about here? Why is that being referred to also with the brook of Egypt? The reason why, do you remember when Abraham was given the original boundaries of Israel? It was really from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. And so the idea is that is really going to be established in this future kingdom when the Lord returns. But I want you to notice in verse 13, the only time in the entire Bible that you have gadol shofar, gadol is great and shofar is trumpet, the only verse in the entire Old Testament that great trumpet is put together is Isaiah 27, 13. Why is that important? Because Jesus mentions it, the great trumpet. And a lot of people say, well, that's a rapture passage. No, it's about the ingathering of Israel. That's what it's about, Isaiah 27, 13. He says, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship Yahweh in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now, Brian, could you read for us Matthew 24, 31? Matthew 24, 31. Please turn your Bibles there. And what you're going to see is at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus is talking about this and he's citing right from Isaiah 27, 13. And again, why am I connecting this? Because I'm connecting it to the final Mishnah, the marriage supper of the Lamb which will happen in this time period. Again, I, um, sorry, Matthew 24, 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Right. Some scholars have, I think, falsely claimed that this is a reference to the rapture. It is not. It's a reference. Again, Jesus used the term great trumpet. The only place in the entire Old Testament Gavol Shofar is used is Isaiah 27, 13. And so you have a reference to the ingathering of Israel. That's what happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Yes. I had a thought. and uh, Should we I, be concerned? No. Yes, yes. When I'm thinking, <laughs> is very dangerous. <laughs> Me too. I, yeah. the, uh, I think a good Bible study yeah. would be the trumpets. Oh, the, yes. The, the sounds and the timing of different trumpets because in the church eschatologically speaking those trumpets are confused all the time yes, which lead absolutely. to error that's right first corinthians 15 you have the final trumpet yeah. and you have reference to the trumpet judgments you have the seals the trumpets and the bulls and yeah so there's a lot that could be said about that absolutely yeah to be honest with you i have um i have studied that in the past and it was very difficult is to come up with a coherent to say this is dogmatic, what this trumpet is and what that trumpet is. The one that we can sort of be dogmatic on is actually this one. 
because it clearly is a reference to this promise that God would one day... See, his promise is that one day Israel... Remember, you and I as Gentiles, we've been brought in. Well, what about Israel? Doesn't Paul say that one day all Israel will be saved? And the reform, they yawn in it. They say, oh, that's never going to happen. Well, then how do you understand this? See, dear ones, when you take Israel and you say church is now Israel, you, it's a, as a replacement theologians do, if you replace Israel with the church then this text makes no sense, that Isaiah 27, 13. But when you realize that there is a promise for national ethnic Israel, all of a sudden you can just read it for what it says. Yes, God is making, he made a promise, he's going to establish Israel. Well, here it is. Here it is. And so that's what this text is about. So again, how does this relate to the great Mishnah? Because at the time of this great Mishnah, when the Lord Jesus returns, his people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, They've trusted in him. They're going to be brought at the great banquet table, reclining with the Messiah. And yes, while that happens, the enemies of God will be judged. But that's what you and I are foreshadowing when you and I are partaking of the Lord's Supper. We remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is both a remembrance of what Christ did, but also a proclamation of what he will do that is coming again. And so next week we will finish more of this. We will come to the New Testament where you and I are going to see how Jesus did mishtas and banquets in which people who trusted in him would be saved. And sadly, the religious leaders who didn't trust in him and who should have will be judged. And so that's where we'll pick it up next week. And again, I want to try to finish it next week so that as we go upstairs and have the Lord's Supper... After Bob's sermon, it'll be a, a very joyous thing indeed. So with that, I will uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the profundity of your promises, that we can look to your word and even look at this term, Mishta, and find that this great banquet will one day come where you bring us home. Now, you not only save us, but you bring us to dinner. And that you and I and all the servants here, Lord, all of us, your people will be saved all because of the shed blood of your son. We thank you, Lord, for this. We're so grateful to you. And we pray for Bob in the sermon today that you would be with him and help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers through the word shared in the sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.